If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, turn to the book of Philippians. We're about halfway through a 10-week series uh, all around the subject of joy as we've been looking at, this, uh, looking at the book of Philippians. So last week we began chapter 2, and the whole idea from verses 1 through 11 that John preached through was the humility of Christ and the exaltation of the lordship of Christ. Paul tells us in verse 5 to take on the attitude of Jesus Christ. And then he spends verses 6 through 8 talking about the birth, life, and death of Jesus. And then verses 9 through 11, Paul writes about Jesus' atoning and sacrificial death, that afterwards that he was exalted, that he beat death, that he rises from the dead, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that he has the name above every name. So we see the humility of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. And we need to see that context because verse 12 that we're going to look at, we're going to look through 12 through 18 today, but verse 12 begins with therefore. And the whole play on words when you see a word like therefore in scripture is what's the therefore, therefore. When we see a transi- transition such as because of or therefore, it points us back to the truth that was just spoken of and then it points us forward to how does that truth, how does that example of Christ in this, in this situation shape our hearts, shape our lives. In verses 12 through 18, Paul gives us some examples of how the humility of Christ and the lordship or the exaltation of Christ should shape us. And he's got a phrase here that I want us to see as we look at this passage. He says at the end of verse 15, shine like stars in the world. Now that's a great passage to put on a coffee mug, right? To kind of throw up on a wall. Maybe you've seen it on social media. It's what I call this message but it's also a passage that if we, if we take out of context, we can come to all sorts of different interpretations on what that actually means, what it means to shine like stars in the world. Paul is sealing this idea of shining light from the words of Jesus on his Sermon on the Mount teaching, always a safe idea to steal words from Jesus as long as they're not taken out of context. But Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others. Again, another phrase that if taken out of context, we can interpret that in a lot of different ways. But in context, we see that the light we shine... It's not for our praise. It's not to ultimately praise us, but it's to, it's to praise our Father in heaven. It's to glorify Him. We are simply just the reflection of who is to be praised. Jesus is the light of the world, so as His followers, we desire to reflect, to shine His light, not ours, His light in this world. And light shining, star shining, implies that there's darkness in this world. That we live in a fallen, sinful world that's groaning ever since Genesis 3. A world that is not functioning as it was designed. A people that are not relating to one another, nor relating to their creator God in the way that we've been called and designed to do so. And you already know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. That this world is in desperate need of the light of Christ. It's in desperate need of stars to pop out of the darkness of the sky and shine the light of christ 
It is in desperate need of the people of God indwelled with the Spirit of God to reflect the Son of God so that our Father God is praised. So how does that happen, though? How do we shine like stars in this world? How do we shine like stars in the circles of influence that, that each of us are in, whether it be family circles or uh, friends, schools, workplaces, teams, communities, neighborhoods? How do we shine like stars for the Lord? Again, verses 12 through 18 will teach us and encourage us in answering that question. Verses 12 and 13 to begin with. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Therefore, because of, in light of the humility of Jesus, in the exaltation of Jesus, that he laid down his life for ours, that he took it back up on the third day, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. In light of that, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So what's he saying? What's he not saying? Keep in mind the audience of this letter. Anytime we look at context, we go, who is the author writing to? And here we find out who the author is writing to in verse 1 of chapter 1, where he says this. Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. He's writing to believers, the people of God. So keep that audience in mind, and because when we do so, that helps us interpret these verses correctly, the way that they were intended to be interpreted. So what's he saying? What's he not saying? Two contrasts. First of all, Paul is not saying that believers should live in daily terror of our God, T-E-R-R-O-R, terror. That we are to live in anxiety of being continually nervous that we will be booted out of the family of God because of works when we've been brought into the family of God strictly through faith and by grace. See, some people misuse this text to instill a law-based fear in the listener in order to try to, that would lead to temporary obedience. So they say, listen, you need to work out your salvation with fear because your salvation might be taken from you if you don't keep up, if you don't measure up. That's not what Paul's writing up here. Again, in the first verse of the letter, Paul calls the people saints in Christ Jesus. That's their identity thanks to the good news of Jesus. It's been given to them and continues to be given to them all because of grace. But he does write, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what does he mean? Well, when you read fear and trembling, think reverence and respect. Just as the Son of God was humble before the Father, which we saw earlier in chapter 2, so we are to be humble before the Son as Lord, every knee bow, every tongue confess. We're bowing our knees and confessing with our tongues that he is Lord with our lives. We don't bow or confess because we're afraid that if we don't, we'll be struck down. We bow and confess because we are in awe of the goodness that we have been shown by him. The, in awe that he laid down his life for ours and took it back up and that we are saved by him. Paul is talking about having a healthy fear 
of displeasing God through disobedience and having an awe and respect for his majesty and his holiness. Lord, I know that you're perfect and, and holy in every way, and yet you took on flesh to dwell among us, to live the life that we were intended to live, to die the death that was ours to, to die. And I don't want to live in a way that makes light of that grace. I don't want to live in a way that thinks, sin's no big deal. When I look at the cross and go, it's a massive deal. I don't want to justify my sin because of your grace. I want to turn from sin because of your grace. The idea of trembling refers to a weakness. It's a posture of dependence upon the Lord. That that's the state of our heart. Not trembling as a guilty sinner, but as a saved saint, all because of grace. Independence because of a saved, out of that identity as a saved saint. Psalm 211 says this, Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Not fear with trembling, but rejoice. Independence. That's what Paul is talking about here. Listen, when we run in our sin, when we find ourselves entangled in sin as a believer and we run from the church family, we run further and further toward sin, we run in, to isolate ourselves because we're in shame, when we do that, we do not understand the gospel of God's grace. We do not understand how good the good news is. And at the same time, when we find in our hearts this attitude that says, I could care less if I sinned. I could care less if I'm contrary to the Scriptures because I want to do what I want to do. When we find in us that attitude of pride, again, we are not understanding the gospel of God's grace. We are not living in a posture then of dependence and humility and awe of His holiness and His goodness in our lives. We're not taking on the attitude of Christ there. We're taking on the attitude of self. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. One other contrast. Paul is not saying that we are saved by works. He's not saying work out to the degree that you're going to be saved from hell and the wrath of God. These words are not contradicting Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, For, it is, for you are saved by grace through faith, this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast, not from works. Paul wrote both of those verses. He's not confused. He's not contradicting himself. He's not saying good luck ever being good enough to earn God's favor and forgiveness. Keep working and you might get there someday. That's not the gospel of God's grace. But what is he saying? Don't rest in your past spiritual growth. Don't rest in your past spiritual growth. That's what he's saying. Keep growing in Christ's likeness. Heather and I have been married for 22 years, a little over. A healthy marriage is not one that rests on past growth. It would be unloving for me as a husband if after 22 years of marriage I said, I really don't want to get away with you for a weekend. I really don't even want to get away with you for a night. I don't want to get away from you for a, w with you for a week of vacation because remember, honey, back in 1996, 
We went to Aruba. Aruba. We went there. And that was awesome. Right? I don't have to do that again because that was so good back then. Honey, I don't want to serve you and sacrifice for you and serve the household and love you. Because remember those sweet early years of our marriage, how I did that? Boy, those were sweet years. I don't want to do that now. But boy, those were sweet. In the same way, Paul is saying, don't rest in your past spiritual growth. And yet we are prone to do exactly that as Christians. We remember those early years of following Jesus and I just had so much joy. I just served the Lord because I could care less. I didn't care about my time, my money, because I had been saved. I'd been brought back. I'd experienced forgiveness, so I was quick to extend that forgiveness to others. And we are prone to go back to these, these early years in our salvation and go, and we rest on that instead of continuing to grow in Christ's likeness. Those attitudes of resting, or apathy, I should say, are detrimental to a marriage. They're detrimental to your relationship with the Lord. Listen, rest in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, the work that He has already done, the work on the cross and the resurrection, finding your rest in Jesus is not the same as being apathetic in your growth in Christ. Throughout the book of Philippians, you get words like run, strive, contend, work. Chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes this. It's going to be our November memory verse. But he says, not that I've already, not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of Christ Jesus. I love that. I have been taken hold of Christ Jesus and I make every effort to keep growing. Every effort. Another way to say working out in the original language is bring to completion. Don't get lazy. Don't get indifferent. Don't get weary. Don't just be thankful for the past grace that you've been extended and shown, but be thankful for the present grace and the future grace that you will be shown. The Lord has work to do in your heart and life. The Lord has work to do in my heart and life. And if we are unsure of that, today over lunch, ask the person who's closest to you. Ask the people around you. Do you think I have room to grow in my heart and life? Just let me know. Do you, do you think I have room to grow? And just listen. Don't, don't defend. Don't justify. Just listen. I bet you will find evidence that there is room to grow in Christ-likeness in your heart and life as well as mine. Notice in these verses, there's both a working out and a working in. As followers of Jesus, we must work out what God and His grace has worked in us. God works in us to save us, and He empowers us with His Spirit. We work out as a result of what the Lord has already done. The book of James speaks of this, that faith without works is dead. But faith that leads to works is evidence that we are saved. It's evidence of the Lord working in us. As we work out, God works in to continue to sanctify us and use us as witnesses that glorify Him. The memory verse for this month 
Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God works in, we work out that new identity that we have in Jesus, and as a result, God works in, making us more like himself. God works in, it increases our desire to continue to work out because we see the evidence of that. Have you seen the evidence of God's transforming work in you? Him working in you. Well, when we see that evidence, that, that encourages, encourages us to go, I don't want to return to where I came from. I don't want to return to that sin pattern or that false belief or that lie. I don't want to return to that because I see the evidence of his work now. Him working in. So I'm going to continue to work out because as I do that, he's going to work in. And he's going to make me more and more like Jesus. And that will benefit and bring joy to my own heart as well as those around me. This whole idea is not just in Philippians. Jesus spoke of this. John 6, he says, No one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. So it's the Lord alone who saves. And yet he also said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. In John 10, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. But he also said, My sheep follow me. They don't just hear my voice, but they follow my voice. Those are not contradictory statements. Those are true statements that we hold in balance with one another. By the grace of God and the Spirit of God, we keep growing in Christ's likeness. We keep working out because He has worked in. And when we do that, when we do that, it leads to a growing joy in us that leads us to shine like stars in the world, starting with those closest to us. So then in verses 14 through 16, Paul gives us some examples of the how when it comes to working out. He starts, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now that's the verse that every parent wants to paint on their wall, right? From birth to like, you leave our home. We want to paint that one on the wall. But again, we've got to see it in context. That's not where I thought Paul would start. start. It seems kind of like an odd place. I thought he would have started with Jesus, Bible, or prayer. One of those three. But he starts with do everything without grumbling and arguing. In the overarching story of Scripture, it's a fitting place to begin. Because Paul knows the story of Israel and God's people in the Old Testament. And he knows that their story can be our story if we don't continue to work out what the Lord has worked in. Remember the story of Israel. The Passover lamb is sacrificed on their behalf. They're set free from bondage. In Egypt, they went, out from, they went out through those waters of the Red Sea, parted, walked over on dry land. Their enemy conquered. They're brought into the wilderness, moving toward the promised land. They were redeemed, bought back, set free from enslavement, better than they could have ever imagined. The Lord graciously redeemed His people and does something they never could have done on their own. And after this little moment of worship, they quickly, over a short amount of time, turn to complaining and arguing. They grumble instead of, instead of express gratitude. They argue instead of have unity. And prior to this section, in chapter 2, Paul has laid out the good news of Jesus. The Passover lamb, Jesus, has laid down his life for ours. His blood has covered our sin. You have been provided for. In your baptism, you've 
it's been a symbol that you've passed through the judgment waters on dry land and the Lord has set you free. You've been redeemed and bought back. You've been set free from the enslavement of sin. The Lord has been more gracious to you and I than we could have ever imagined. Better than you and I could have ever done. He, I mean, He's done something we could have never done in our own strength. And Paul is saying, don't go back to what the Israelites did. Don't fall into grumbling and arguing. Such attitudes will keep us from shining like stars. So how do Christians grumble and argue? I want to give you one example in our vision statement, one behind or one example under each aspect of our vision statement. So the first one is devoted to Jesus. How do we grumble in this one? A building's fine. It'll be okay. Okay? The Lord is still sovereign. On windy days, it's like this. Causes you to tremble a little bit, doesn't it? You're sitting down. I'm standing. Sounds like it's going to hit me first. Um, so how do we grumble when, the devote, when, we, uh, when we are devoted to Jesus? When our approach to God is the question of, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? We are reflecting an attitude when we do that, like the Israelites. When we grumble, we are showing evidence that we have little faith that God will continue to extend His graciousness in our lives. When we grumble with the Lord, we are showing that we have little faith in His goodness. His love for us, His sovereignty, His wisdom, His ways. Grumbling and arguing adds to the darkness because it obscures the light of God's gracious providence and goodness. Pastor Dan Brensel said this, How can we be lights in a dark world that finds God unsatisfying when by our complaining we indicate that we share exactly the same view of God, that He and His way and provision are unsatisfying? That is amazing. That is so good for us to hear. And the world around us doesn't worship the Lord because they don't find Him satisfying. And yet we grumble and complain and argue, and what have you done for me lately? And we are, saying, we are reflecting the exact same attitude that God is not satisfying to us. After all the Lord had done for the Israelites, they were unsatisfied. It led to idolatry and worship of lesser things. May we shine like stars as we find our satisfaction ultimately in Him. What about dedicated to one another? Well, when we are in disunity with one another in the family of God, when we grumble about or with fellow brothers and sisters, when gossip or slander becomes our mode of language, we're not shining like stars. Unity is a constant subject in this letter. Joy is a constant subject, so is unity. Show me the church that loves one another extravagantly, that, that answers Jesus' prayer for unity and love in John 15, and you will find a church that shines like stars in this world. What about driven to reach people? How do we grumble and argue on this one? It's when we see the mission field as, as the enemy. It's when we see the mission field as the enemy. In verse 15, Paul calls the world, the Philippian church that it exists in, the, the generation that it is a part of, as crooked and perverted. The world hasn't changed since Genesis 3. We shouldn't be surprised. Oh, this, this is totally different. No, it's not. The world has been broken and fallen and groaning and aching since Genesis 3. It's not new to us. 
The enemy is not flesh and blood, though. It's not, the enemy is not those who disagree with biblical convictions because guess what? You and I, before we were saved, we disagreed with biblical convictions. We too were once rebels and wanderers. Grumble, grumblers have forgotten the amazing grace in their own life. And grumblers don't make great missionaries. They're not pers- persuasive in their speech or their sharing or their way of life. Trevin Wax said this, It's hard to joyfully and consistently proclaim the gospel when all you do is complain about the mission field. Murmuring does not further God's mission. Longing for yesteryear does not further God's mission. We are not a people of dead hope. We are not a people of past hope in some past life. We are a people of hope in a risen Savior today. We have living hope today. Hope for today and hope for the future that He is actively at work in this world and has called His people to be winsome, bold, fearless, loving, gracious, compassionate, truth speakers and showers of the good news. As chapter 1 told us, we stand unified, contending for the faith, living fearlessly because our God is good and sovereign. He's not asleep at the wheel. His heart is for all people, every tribe, tongue, nation. We are people who believe that light has overcome the darkness, and so we reject grumbling about the mission field. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, verse 15, so that it has a purpose. The lack of grumbling and arguing has a purpose. What is it? So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. A grumble-free life is a shiny life in this world. A life that is not prone to disputes and murmuring is a life that shows and tells and has this outward testimony to the good news. But how do we resist grumbling and complaining when it's so easy for us, right? Verse 16, by holding firm to the word of life. The idea there is not just believing the words in Scripture, but but following them. It's not just mere belief, but belief that leads to obedience. Belief that leads to realigning your life to the Scriptures. Holding firm, not loosely. Standing fast and not shrinking back. And then Paul, like he has in other times in this letter, moves to this, these words that reflect his, pastor, his pastoral or his shepherd heart. He says this, Then I can boast in the day of Christ Jesus that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's saying, Philippians, if I die here in Rome, if I end up being executed, don't go back to grumbling. Keep holding fast to the word of life. Keep growing in Christ's likeness. Don't get indifferent. Don't get weary. But work out what the Lord has worked in you. And as you work out, understand that it's you're working out because of grace, fueled by grace. He said something very similar in chapter 1. Since I am persuaded of this, he said in verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is saying in this letter and with these words here, I don't regret pouring out my life for you, Philippian saints. I don't regret partnering with you 
in the gospel. I don't regret the sacrifice I have made to serve for your progress and joy. He says in verse 17, actually, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. That deep lasting joy is found in choosing to spend your life for the sake of others. To not keep it to yourself, but allow God to pour out your life for the sake of others, for their progress in the faith, for their joy in the Lord. He says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. In the Old Testament, drink offerings were made to worship the Lord, similar, similar to a, a grain offering or a sacrifice of an animal. All those sacrifices, all those offerings pointed forward to the cross, to the sacrifice of Jesus. The drink offering was a metaphor, a picture that one day the blood of Jesus would be spilled and poured out on that cross. That's what Paul spoke of in verses 6 through 8 in chapter 2. And Paul is saying, as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to take on the attitude of Christ and pour out my life for the sake of others. He's saying, I might end up dying here in Rome, much like Jesus died in Calvary, but it's worth it. It's worth it if the Lord would be so gracious to use me for his purposes to further his kingdom, to, uh, to see progress and joy in the lives of people. There's a personal cost, but it leads to rejoicing. But that's the gospel, right? On Friday, there's suffering and there is a personal cost, but it leads to rejoicing on Sunday morning. It leads to victory on Sunday. A life poured out for God's mission and purpose in this world is a life that reflects Jesus and glorifies our God, a life that holds fast to the word of life, a life that rejects grumbling and arguing, a life that gr keeps growing in Christ's likeness, fueled by the grace of God that it has been shown, a life that is in a posture of awe and humility and dependence is a life that shines like stars in this world. We're going to move into a time of communion. In communion, we remember that Jesus has poured out his life for ours. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are welcome to take communion with us. Uh, First Impressions is going to begin to pass the trays and make sure you get both elements, the bread and juice, get both cups on top of one another. Ben Martin then is going to come up after we've had a time of prayer and reflection to... Uh, to lead us in taking those elements together and praying for us and praying, leading us in prayer. So as we take communion, may we express our gratitude to the Lord for his sacrifice, his faithful work in our lives, that he is faithful to finish what he has begun. Psalm 66 begins with this. Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing about the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land. They crossed the river on foot. There we rejoiced in Him. He rules forever by His might. He keeps His eye on the nations, the rebellious, should not exalt themselves. Bless our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Let's be people who live in awe of what our, what our God has done, not only in our lives, but in history 
and the works that He will do in the future. And let's be a people of prayer, dependence before His awesomeness this week. See you back next Sunday.